Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Tanya Reynolds. Tanya Reynolds is a scientist, a researcher, and an assistant professor of evolution and development at the University of New Mexico. During our conversation, Tanya explains the field of evolutionary psychology, the evolutionary history and culture of hunter-gatherer societies, what we know about how women compete for men, the role and purpose of gossip in female social life and competition, the importance of finding high-quality men for women, why women are driven to find super nice friends, and why equality is often so important to female relationships. As I have mentioned on this show, I think the field of evolutionary psychology is the most fascinating and revelatory area of research in modern science. Tanya's career is just beginning, and to me, she is focusing on the subjects that attempt to accurately explain human nature, why we are the way we are. I loved this conversation and all of the taboo, politically incorrect, and humbling topics we discuss. Robert Greene has noted that we often like to think that we are descended from angels, not from primates. I think understanding our animal nature, our hardwired tendencies, can help us be more compassionate towards our fellow flawed apes, more honest with ourselves, and more capable of acclimating our lives to flourish with this reality. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Tanya Reynolds. Tanya Reynolds, I cannot tell you how much um, I have been looking forward to this conversation. Welcome to the show. It's wonderful to meet you. Thanks for making the time. Thank you so much for having me. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Me too. And I, I have to say over the last couple of days as I have been you know, reviewing your your work, I think you probably work, in my opinion, in the most interesting field in academia. And so many times when I was reading papers you had co-written or just going over the the subjects that you were you're an expert in I just found myself saying like this is so fucking mind-blowing and it's so interesting and I, I think it might be helpful just for people who are unfamiliar with the field of evolutionary psychology in general to start by asking you a very simple question which is what is it what's the purpose of evolutionary psychology yeah great question so Evolutionary psychology considers the principles of natural selection and how those apply to the human brain. So we think about, you know, how have our minds been shaped to solve problems that were reoccurring for our human ancestors. So we look at the brain as being shaped by natural selection, just like the rest of our bodies. So for example, it's no accident that our skin darkens in response to sun exposure. That's a bodily adaptation that uh, protects us against sun damage. But you can also think about what mental features might have been favored over the course of human evolution because they granted 
advantages to our human ancestors. So we might look around and say, you know, why is it the case that so many of us are afraid of snakes or heights, but not many of us are afraid of the things that actually often kill us in modern environments like cars? Hmm. Well, if you think about it, cars have only been around for the past, you know, 100 years, which is an eye blink compared to the millions of years our ancestors have been a around. And so instead, we are now the descendants of those who avoided the challenges that most often faced our ancestors. So these might be poisonous snakes. These might be, you know, tall cliffs. These might be large cats or other humans who look menacing. We have certain tendencies. These are mental tendencies that are not here by coincidence. So you could also, for example, look at food preferences and, you know, look at people around the world and ask how many of you would like to eat this meat that's rotted and has, you know, maggots coming out of it. There probably are very few people who are interested in eating something like that and find it appetizing. Well, that's because, you know, the pathogens carried by rotting meat was a a challenge faced by all of our ancestors. So we are the descendants of those who avoided that threat. And so in a modern environment, we may not think about why we find, you know, rotting meat disgusting, but we nonetheless have no motivation to consume it. And so this is what, these are the types of questions that evolutionary psychologists look at, like how have our modern brains, how might they be reflections of the challenges that our ancestors faced? Yeah. I mean, to me, the if you are interested in human nature, I've said this before on this show, I really think that EvPsych is, you know, really uh, has its eye on the bullseye of using methodology to try to approach that from as clear and as honest a perspective as is possible. I had David Buss on the show. I, I live in Austin and he lives down not too far down the street from where I live. He was the third uh, guest on the show. And I know he's a bit of a, a godfather in the field. You're just starting out your career. I know you know you got your PhD a number of years ago, but what what attracts you about EvPsych in the first place? What What do you find interesting about it? Yeah, I think for me, I I like that it answers the why questions, because so many answers that we encounter tend to be more proximate or how questions, whereas evolutionary psychology offers us the answer of, well, why would we even have this preference at all? Why would it be the case that we, you know, look for these traits in fellow social partners or romantic partners? Why are we disgusted by the things that we are? I just find it very satisfying and also very, (laughs) very (laughs) logical. Like, okay, If it's the case that ancestors who had some trait that granted them an advantage were more likely to survive and more likely to reproduce, and if most traits are heritable, therefore, the population should be filled with more individuals who possess this trait compared to a trait that was harmful. It just, it feels very logical. And so to me, it just makes so much sense. And it's just very appealing to have the answer to those questions. I totally agree. I mean, to me, you know, evolutionary psychology is a bit like the ultimate red pill in terms of, you know, humbling yourself about your own nature and probably why you are the way you are. I mentioned this before we started the conversation that there's a rather obscure paper that I think you are a co-author on along with Roy Baumeister, who actually is coming on the show next week. 
that I think awesome. was published in December of 2017. And the title of that article is Competing for Love, Applying Sexual Economic Theory to Mating Contests. And I know one of the themes just selfishly and to me that is so interesting about evolutionary psychology and your work is about you know, the reality of um, dating competition, mating competition, intersex competition. And I thought maybe to kick off the conversation, I would just quote, again, I mentioned this earlier, that there were parts of your your literature that I, when I read them, it was just sort of book dropping line after book dropping line that I came across. And I, I thought I might quote a few different sections from the book and then uh, I'd love to pause after each one and just get any additional feedback or color you might want to add to these sections. And I want to start with women specifically um, and go over some of the components of of this aspect of life, mostly because it's so interesting and mostly because I, I also think it is not discussed very often often in polite society. And this is... this agree. is. A, <laughs> this is part of why I think it, it's so interesting is that um there there I don't think you know I, I certainly wasn't raised to um you know research this or learn about these aspects of of life which are crucial crucial obviously to to life itself. This is the quote. We begin with women's competition. She is not competing for sex per se because sex is readily available to most young women and during the bloom of youth most young women can find sex if they want it. Usually more men are interested in having sex with her than she wants, the opposite situation of most young men. Instead of sex, therefore, her primary goal is to get a high-quality man. Quality matters more than quantity. Across a woman's life, she can only have a few children, so being choosy is important for maximizing her success in the biological contest. Quality in a sex partner, partner means a man who will provide for her and her children, as well as protecting them from danger. Resources are, are mostly credited in the male sphere, so she wants a man to bring a goodly share of what the men can produce. She may also physically, she also may be physically and sexually attracted to a man who has indications of high quality genes. A pattern of natural, a pattern that natural natural selection will will reward insofar as the quality of his genes will improve the quality and success of her offspring. Sex appeal is what women is what the woman offers the man, what the man, what the what the woman offers the man in exchange for his providing her with resources. She competes against other women to be the most sexually desirable. Sex appeal is her main is her means of competition the goal of which is non-sexual resources as we shall see below this is precisely reserved reversed for the for the males who compete among themselves to accumulate resources towards the goal of obtaining sex i want to just stop there and maybe give you some time to comment on you know you are a woman and you know i i i can tell just by how involved you are in this research that this is a, of particular interest to you what what else is to be said uh, related to that quote in terms of what the goals typically have been and are for women in the marketplace in terms of competition for themselves and what they're really after in general? Yeah. So part of the reason this was written beautifully is I, I have to grant credit to Roy. He's a phenomenal writer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's funny to hear it back. Like, wow, gosh, he's he's brilliant. Um yeah. 
But, but yeah, so I, I will say that, you know, so it is the case that men and women, they face different challenges across human history when it came to reproduction. So if we think about what it takes to make a baby, for a woman, the minimum investment is so much higher than it is for the man. The woman has to invest, even just to start with the sex cells, like an egg is so much more calorically expensive um, and limited. Women are born with the amount of eggs they will produce across their lifespan. But then moving forward, she's responsible for developing the fetus for, you know, nine months. Childbirth was also incredibly dangerous. Hmm. And then, you know, after that, providing um, breast milk is calorically demanding, as is pregnancy. So you have all these extra demands on your body and you are vulnerable. Vulnerable. You can't move as well. So anyone who's seen a nine-month pregnant woman walk around, it's more of like a waddle. So you yeah. can't defend yourself. You can't. And when we're foraging for food, if you are nine months pregnant, it is incredibly hard to bend over and dig for tubers. So not only do you need more calories, you you can't you know forage as successfully on your own. So women, our, our female ancestors, faced a lot of unique challenges that our male ancestors did not. So for women, because they're bringing so much to the reproductive table, they can afford to be choosy when it comes to mates. You know, they are basically offering up their wombs for nine months, their bodies for, you know, a year, if not more, if you consider how long people tend to breastfeed. So they're bringing so much to the table that they are the limiting factor when it comes to reproduction. And so instead of, you know, looking for sex partners, which they can have, you know, and for our female ancestors, it didn't matter if you had sex with one man or a hundred men, you were probably going to have roughly, you know, one baby per year max. So getting access to sex was not the limiting factor for our female ancestors. Instead, they needed a lot of help getting access to the calories they needed or protection or resources to care for the child. So, you know, are you in a safe environment? Do you have protection from the elements? Do you have someone helping you get food? Um, especially when you're, you know, nursing an infant, you don't have the time or capacity to be, you know, foraging for food to the same degree. And so our female ancestors were looking for someone who could provide and help. And so that's why you see in modern environments still today, women tend to prioritize access to resources, mm -hmm. inmates, or traits that predict a later access to resource, such as ambition, intelligence, and then not only that, not only do they have access to resources, but also is the person likely to share those resources? So if you were with the wealthiest man in the world, but he was the least generous, those resources would do you no good. And so women also tend to look for, you know, cues of kindness, dependability, willingness to share, and cues of commitment. Now for our male ancestors, unlike our female ancestors, they weren't kind of burdened by the demands of pregnancy or childbirth, in theory, they could have as many, there was no upper limit on the number of children they could have because all they're bringing to the reproductive table is sperm. You know, that's the minimum investment and the time it takes to have sex. So instead for our male ancestors, they were more interested in whether they could find a mate at all. And many men throughout human history never reproduced. So when they do genetic analyses, we are the descendants of more women than more men. 
meaning that there were some men who had a lot of offspring and many men who had zero. And so for men, there was competition among them for access to a sexual partner at all, but not just any sexual partner. She needed to be of kind of reproductive age, actually fertile. Otherwise, you could be having all the sex in the world and it's never going to lead to any, you know, offspring. So we are the descendants of the men who found mates who were attracted to them, hopefully, and those mates were of reproductive age. And so that's why you see today men tend to kind of put more weight in their mate preferences on cues of age, but youth in particular. So you might notice this pattern like, oh, why is it the case that as men get older, they tend to look for younger and younger women? Hmm. Well, that makes sense. We think about female fertility declines pretty sharply with age. And so if a man is 60 and paired with another woman who's 60, that would not lead to any babies. So as you notice, you know, as men age, they tend to prefer younger women. Their preferences tend to be pretty well aligned with kind of the window of fecundity among women. They are most attracted to women of reproductive age and particularly the physical cues that signal fertility and youth. So things like wrinkle-free skin or waist-to-hip ratio is a big one. So kind of looking for that narrow waist relative to larger hips, that's been associated with rates of ovulation. So women who tend to have more narrow waist relative to larger hips, kind of that hourglass figure, tend to show higher rates of ovulation. And so what these patterns tell us is, you know, the cues that men are looking for in mates also aren't arbitrary. They tend to be associated with the likelihood of being able to reproduce, which makes sense because for all the men throughout human history that were attracted to women, you know, over 60, good for them, but we are not their descendants. Their sex was not producing any children. So we are the descendants of both the men and the women who kind of overcame their the obstacles related to their particular aspect of reproduction and successfully reproduced. Yeah. Makes sense. And is totally mind blowing. The, uh, you know, one, I had heard of this idea and this concept before doing research for this interview, but I, I didn't know it's, it's name. And my understanding is the name for this is patrilocal social groups. And this, you know, I think is a crucial fact and component of this story of female nature in general. So I want to just put that phrase to you and just ask you, what what, what does that mean? What is patrilocal social groups and how does it relate to women? Yeah. So patrilocal means that upon marriage, what kind of often happened through many human groups throughout human history is the woman would leave her family to go live with her husband's. Um, with her husband and his family. And so patrilocal being, you know, local to the male line. Mm -hmm. And so what that meant is that for many of our human ancestors, men were around their families and women were often away from their genetic relatives, possibly around, you know, strangers with whom they have no shared history and also no shared genetic interests. They're not her family. Mm -hmm. And so what this meant is like we could put ourselves in these women's shoes and think about what that would have been like. You know, you move to this new group, you don't know anyone. And so you had to figure out which women could be your allies, who can you trust? And it's a 
there's a lot at stake if you might be letting these women, you know, look after your child or if you're sharing, you know, personal information with them, maybe about your relationship. If they were to go tell your husband or tell everyone in the group, say you're attracted to some other man in the group, you could have been killed. Mm. And so one of the best predictors of whether women are killed by their husbands is that man's suspected infidelity. So if any woman is spreading a rumor that you might be cheating on your husband, that could be your death, you know, or if a man leaves you and no longer invests in you and your kids, um, that means your kids' lives are on the line, as are yours, um, or as is your life. So I think that once you stop and think about, okay, our female ancestors needed to figure out who they could trust, we could think about, well, what cues might you use? Um, and what I've argued is that women might pay attention to cues of kindness. So if you hold everything else constant, a woman who's more altruistic is going to be more likely to share with you, share her resources, more likely to forgive you if you, I don't know, fail to be a good reciprocator that day. Um, so they might look for kindness, but they'd also look for cues of interpersonal loyalty. Mm. Um, so is she devoted to you personally? Um, so if she's giving off these cues that she's your bestie and has your back, you know, you can be more confident that you can trust her compared to someone that's, you know, showing no interest or no particular special treatment towards you. And so, indeed, what we find is that when we look at kind of modern day preferences, we've asked men and women, what do you look for in a same sex friend? Women tend to place more emphasis on whether the friend is kind and whether she is interpersonally loyal. So, mm -hmm. for example, does she ask about your family? Does she remember your birthday? Does she um, check in to see how you're doing? Or are you always the one that has to reach out to her? So, these types of um, cues of loyalty, women tend to place greater emphasis on in there when considering, you know, how close of a friend is this same sex peer compared to men. Yeah. The, the way I have heard you say this in the past, and th this may be a direct quote, is that women tend to look for friends as a quote, coalitional partner in reputational warfare. Yes. Yeah. So when I, I was looking through, and part of the reason I was looking through this is because Joyce Benenson raised this question. She was responding to a Target article I wrote, and she kind of raised this question of why do women invest or care so much about their same-sex friends? Um, and it's a great point. So when I, I dove into the literature to see, like, what evidence can I find that non-kin, so females, so not relatives, among women, what tangible benefits are they providing? And it was pretty hard to find. So people have made the argument that women's female friends are providing aloe care, meaning that they're taking care of their children. Um, but when I looked into the data, it suggested that the majority of aloe care is provided by women's family members. So other women who are unrelated do provide some care, but the biggest predictor is whether they're a genetic relative of the woman. Mm -hmm. And so that you can predict that is, can just be explained through kin selection, that we are helping those with whom we share genes because we're kind of indirectly passing on our genes. And so if it's the case that women aren't really taking care of each other's kids that much, it's like, okay, well, why are women so concerned about their female friends? And then if you look at, you know, what about food sharing? The data suggests men's provisioning more often gets shared widely throughout the group, suggesting that if any, like if, if people are at risk of starvation, 
it's other men in the group that are kind of sharing their uh, whatever products they are bringing back often meet with the neediest compared to women helping one another out with provisioning. At least the data don't suggest that happens, mm. you know, to a large degree. And so it's like, okay, if it's not childcare, it's not food, what is it that women are kind of doing for one another? And Hess and Hagen have argued that women's competition has this coalitional component to it. So meaning that when you look at women's competition with one another, they tend to use kind of more reputational attacks. Um, so they might use gossip or spread rumors. And this is pretty consequential because, as I was saying, you know, social information has tangible consequences. If you cause a woman's husband to doubt her fidelity, that could mean that she's killed or he leaves her for someone else. So Social information matters. Um, and Hessen Hagen argued that this type of competition has a group-based component for women. And so um, they've found, for example, that other women are less likely to spread a rumor about another woman if she has a female friend present. So that suggests like just knowing like, oh, Becky's best friend is here. I'm not going to say anything. Becky's reputation might not be destroyed to the same degree. And so it suggests that having female allies might actually allow you to protect your reputation against attack. So not only might people be less likely to say the statement at all, but your female friends, if they really are loyal to you, they might be able to shut down the rumor like, oh, no, she didn't. She never cheated on her husband or, you know, defend you. Um, and indeed, women do get they're more upset with their female friends compared to men if their friends don't defend them or if their friends um, say anything bad about them. So if they're saying it, sharing any negative reputational information, women get more upset about that, suggesting we are kind of counting on our female allies to defend our reputations. Um, but they also, female friends are also sources of social information. So they can bring you gossip um, and that might help you outcompete your same-sex rival. So if you're competing with one other woman for the same man or um, maybe the same friend and you have this social information that harms her reputation, you might have a slight advantage and if it gets you a mate, that could be the difference between providing for your kids and not providing for your kids. So I think when kind of overall critique I have is that sometimes people think that female competition is petty. And I mm. don't think that that's true mm. at all. I think if we think about what our female ancestors were facing, it's their children's lives on the line, you know. So it might just be one rumor. But if that rumor was the difference between your having a mate and not having a mate, that that could have been huge. Um, but yeah, so the argument being that perhaps females kind of are so concerned with their with whether they have female friends and the status of their friendship to protect themselves against reputational attacks and to leverage reputational attacks. So kind of a team based coalitional component to female intrasexual competition. Yeah. Robert Greene has this line that he says that you know, we like to think that we're descended from angels when we're really descended from primates. And I think the more you learn about all of this data, it is a little uh, startling at first and, and can be, I used this word earlier, but deeply humbling. But I think it does give you more 
uh, more of just an understanding of why we are this way. And that it's, you know, to your point in, you need to look back in history, I think, to have an accurate and probably a more, you know, thorough and compassionate view of why men and women are the way they are. And it, it's, it's rooted in our evolutionary nature. You mentioned Joyce Benenson. I, I just had a conversation with her uh, within the last couple of weeks. And I remember one of the kind of money lines that uh, I quoted to her, because I had heard her say this on a prior conversation, that if she had to boil down the male and female psyche into a sentence, she would say that you know the male psyche is fundamentally concerned with both cooperation and competition, and that the female psyche is primarily concerned with can I keep this thing alive? That that is really the role in her estimation of of both both sexes. And it may be helpful to go back to this article. And there's so much rich information in here that I think you know you and your co-authors touch on in here. And and this this actually speaks to um, the reputational component of of what you were just mentioning. And this is this is the other the second quote. The second sort of contest among women involves reputational competition and manipulation. It is a long familiar observation that women sometimes engage in gossip by which they disparage and derogate each other. Recent analysis have suggested that female gossip is not an idle or frivolous activity, as you just mentioned, and may in fact reflect earnest competition for mates. Women collect and pass on information about each other perhaps especially information depicting other women's sexuality in a negative, undesirable, or socially inappropriate fashion. You, you mentioned these two people earlier. Hess and Hagen have labeled this informational warfare as a way of denoting that women's gossip is a means by which they seek to, to defeat rivals for male attention and mates. One might think that men would use informational warfare just as much as women, because men might wish to damage their rivals' reputation so as to improve their own chances. But perhaps females would rely on it more. Male reputations, this is such an interesting and I think key point in general about this entire subject. Male reputations are often tied to objectively verifiable factors, such as physical prowess, the amassing of resources, for example, money, and social status based on cultural achievement. It is easier for a man to rebut reputational challenges than for a woman insofar as the man can provide sorry insofar as the man can prove he has resources or can display strength and courage whereas a woman cannot easily refute accusations of promiscuity also the very threat of physical aggression may operate to deter men from slandering each other in a way that would not occur to women the history of dueling provides ample evidence that derogating another man can put another man in physical danger. Women have hardly ever dueled and hence do not face the risk in connection with gossiping and slandering. Um, one other, I want to get your thoughts on that, but you know, one other thing that I remember as, as we closed the conversation with Joyce, I asked her about the misunderstandings that she sees from an ev psych perspective in modernity. And she said, something that consistently drives her crazy is the idea that men are not wired for cooperation that and i think her expertise for much of her career is in is in children and understanding the differences between boys and girls and their boys and girls nature um but i it, it, that links into a lot of that last quote about how men 
you know, do need to rely on cooperation often for their own survival and that there are benefits to having a superior man on your team like there would be in sports because of the net benefit uh, to you and your your chances of survival. So it's a mouthful there. I just threw at you, but I'd love to you know give you some space to comment on on you know that last quote in general. If there's anything else that comes to mind, yeah, yeah. So one reason that you see a lot of women's reputational attacks being centered around sexuality is hmm. because this is one of the preferences that men have exhibited across human history when looking for a mate. So compared to women, men tend to place greater emphasis on sexual chastity or sexual restraint, especially in a long-term partner. However, these preferences have weakened in modern times, but throughout much of human history, that was a huge priority for men. And the evolutionary reason being that our male ancestors never had paternity certainty. So you could never be a hundred percent sure that the, you know, the baby that was just born is your genetic child. Um, you could use cues of resemblance and data suggest men do. They're more likely to invest in children if the child resembles them or has similar kind of behavioral or preferences as them. And men use that as a cue of investment. But throughout human history, before we had paternity tests, you didn't know for certain that that child was yours. And so the men who preferred female partners, who put them at a lower risk of cuckoldry, who were likely to be sexually faithful, would have been kind of more certain in their paternity status. So if you selected a female partner who had no prior sexual history, was very, you know, sexually restrained, you could be slightly more confident that the child that she produced was your genetic child. And so due to this kind of unique pressure faced by our male ancestors, our female ancestors didn't need to worry about this. They always knew that was their baby if they birthed the baby. But our male ancestors faced this challenge of paternity certainty. And so now in modern times, still today, you see a slightly greater preference among men when looking at long-term partners for a sexually restrained partner. So what this meant is if men show this preference for a female partner who is more sexually restrained, this kind of opens up an opportunity for competition among women competing among each other to appeal to those potential mates. So you know, it raises the opportunity that if you could maybe call into question whether this woman is likely to be sexually faithful, that might decrease her appeal as a mate. And it might mean you get the mate and you get to provide for your children. And so it sounds really, you know, bleak and sinister, but it was a reality that if men have this preference, women can compete to better appeal to that preference. And so what you see is in modern environments, a lot, a huge focus of female gossip is centered around one another's sexuality. Um, And some data have even, some studies have shown that women are better at remembering other women's histories and like personal information, but their sexual information in particular. And they're also more interested in that information in particular. And then you can also look at what kind of pieces of information do women share with each other. And some data suggest women tend to be you know, more self-disclosing except for their sexual histories. So they Mm. tend to guard that information Mm. more carefully. And so, yeah, it was, it was actually, I believe it was Ann Campbell who kind of raised this point that 
If you call into question another woman's sexual history, it is incredibly hard to stop that rumor. How do you mm-hmm. prove that you haven't had sex with this man, you know, or many men? You could line up all the men in the group and ask them, you know, have have we had sex? But this would be pretty challenging. Whereas for men, if a huge part of their mate value was around whether they had resources, whether they were physically strong, these are things, whether they're brave These are things that you can demonstrate kind of on the spot. If you question a man's physical strength, he could lift something heavy. If you question his bravery, he could, you know, do some dangerous feat. And if you question his resources, well, often throughout human history, our resources were visible visible to everyone. You know, how much livestock do you have? How many, you know animals have you killed recently? How many pelts do you have? People could see it Mm. um, as they still can today, you know, Mm. depending on whether you choose to flaunt your wealth. And so Anne Campbell raised this point that women's kind of this aspect of female mate value was vulnerable to attack. And so if other women called it into question, it'd be really hard to defend yourself. And so um, there's also some data that kind of the few times that women do resort to physical aggression, it's over defending their sexual reputation. And so it, again, kind of supports this pattern that this was almost like the Achilles heel Mm. of women's mate value. It's incredibly vulnerable. And if other women attack it, you could be totally screwed. And so women are very cautious about sharing their information. They're very concerned with what other women are saying about their sexual history. Yeah, makes sense and totally fascinating. Here's the final quote about women specifically from, from this article that I want to I want to read out. And some of this we've already we've already touched on, but it, it really is linked to so much of your work is related to you know, first of all, just subjects I think are totally fascinating and uh, conversations I have already had on this show that are are related to this. I interviewed a guy named John Berger who wrote a book called Date Onomics, which is essentially just an exploration of this next quote. And this is it. Changes in the local sex ratio can alter the intensity of female competition, as shown by Reynolds, Forney, Frederick, and Baumeister. An online survey, survey of American women assess their perception of the local sex ratio, as well as each woman's desire for thinness and signs of pathological eating. The more women perceived the local mating market to have a shortage of men, the more they wanted to be thin, and the more signs of eating disorders they reported. Women who were highly competitive were most likely to desire to be thin, consistent with the view that orientation Towards, com- towards competitive contests underlies these reactions. Thus, in sexual economic terms, a shortage of buyers, eligible single men, increases the competitive pressure among sellers, single women. They respond to the marketplace situation in which supply exceeds demand by becoming increasingly critical of their product, their bodies. Although these experiments did not measure behavioral change, they combined with correlational evidence reported earlier on pathological eating patterns to suggest that women respond to a shortage of men by trying extra hard to be thin. And I could not help in reading that quote, think about a conversation I had with a guy um, named Richard Reeves, who wrote a book called Of Boys and Men a number of months ago. And one of his primary points is that hiding in plain sight in our culture now is essentially in the last generation an inverse number of people 
men and women who are graduated from college. It's something like 60, low 60s percentage, 62% of college graduates now in America are, are women and 38% are men. And in that context, you know, and John Berger talks about this in individual cities and how really each individual city is, is their own sexual marketplace with different sex ratios. It's no surprise, given what I just read in that article, that college campuses in many ways must be hell in many circumstances for many reasons for women. I just want to give you a, an opportunity to respond to that. I know you work at a university and maybe I'll just leave it there to give you, uh, you know, an opportunity to just respond to that general point of just the importance of a sexual marketplace and its effect on women and in many cases, a negative effect. Yeah. So the sex ratio is kind of like, you know, indicates how many competitors there are to potential mates. So when it's, when there's more women in the environment, you have more, at least for women, you have more same-sex rivals and fewer potential mates. So your odds of securing a mate have decreased. Yeah. And the data suggests that women are picking up on this, um, maybe not consciously. Um, it's unclear whether it's a conscious um, inference being made, but in these environments, women feel more competitive with one another. And um, my data, along with my colleagues, we find like across a series um, of studies, women feel more pressure to change their appearance to attract mates. They are less satisfied with their bodies. They're more motivated to lose weight and to diet. Um, and so what this suggests is, I mean, if we know that the female kind of female appearance is a critical domain of men's mate preferences, well, then that might be one way by which women are attempting to appeal to potential mates. Um, but psychologically, that that might manifest as being dissatisfied, you know, um, and so it suggests it would be painful for women. And other data have shown, for example, like in, in schools that tend to have a higher proportion of women, you tend to see more eating disorders. Mm. Um, we even did we did a experiment of it where we told, we showed women kind of a, a pattern. It was an array of dating profiles. Um, these hypo, well, they were fake profiles, but the participants mm -hmm. didn't know that. And when we showed them a profile array that had more men, they felt um, better about their bodies and were less motivated to lose weight compared to when we showed them one that was um, featured an abundance of women. But you're totally right that, and, and it was interesting because actually when we showed them the profile array featuring an abundance of women, kind of their tendencies didn't change. They showed more change in response to the other array where there was more men such that they were like felt less pressured to lose weight. Hmm. Um, and so what that might suggest is women might have an awareness. These were college women and they might have an awareness that my environment is female skewed. Um, so they might have a priori knowledge of the sex ratio on their college campuses. And you're totally right that they are female skewed. Um, and so it suggests that being in these environments might have downstream negative consequences for women. So when we are celebrating, oh, so many women are getting into college, 
that is great, but it also might lead to some negative psychological outcomes, including body dissatisfaction. Other data suggests that if you expose women to um, a female skewed sex ratio, they're more willing to aggress against one another. And Mm -hmm. so this might mean that in these environments, women might also show more gossip and, you know, female intrasexual competition towards one another. And so it might also be a less pleasant environment for those reasons as well. Um, But I, I, I also think it's kind of interesting that, um, oh, and I mean, you can also make the argument that if m- women tend to be attracted to men with like resources and education, that they might then be facing kind of this world where there are very few men who actually have those qualifications. Um, and and people have made that argument, you know, that like, where are all the eligible men? <laughs> As though that's the only negative consequence of men not going to college. <laughs> It's like, it's odd to me that nobody's asking like, well, what about the men that are falling behind? What might it feel like for them? Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I I knew that was something a bit later in the conversation I wanted to bring up, but I, now might be a good time about, you know, just get, getting your thoughts on, you know, I, I always like to give space for, you know, guests on the show to give their own general advice. And when you you know, assess the reality. And I don't know how well the data is really known by the general public, but I think you are, you're right that, you know, my understanding typically is that women will only date across and above hierarchies. And a key component to that is finding mates and people they want to date who are at least as intelligent and credentialed as they are, or more so. And I know you work with students. your 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 colleague, I know Jeffrey Miller has said this before. Who who connected, who recommended you uh, to me that one of one of to him the most interesting you know uh, issues that our civilization is going to be facing over the next decade or two is around this very fact that there are going to be millions or tens of millions of more college educated women than there are men. And what do you do in that in situation when where all where are to your your point where are all the eligible men? What what advice would you have, or what's your general, if not advice, thoughts about how to deal with that reality? It's something just in private I bring up with female friends of mine, but I'd love to give you an opportunity to, to speak to that in general. Yeah, I guess I mean there are more like kind of short term, immediate suggestions and more long-term suggestions like overall I I do think it's a problem that we've for the long term kind of overlooked men's negative outcomes in society so a lot of data suggests that men although there are more men at the very top of society there are also more men at the bottom of society so men are less likely to go to college at all less likely to graduate high school more likely to be homeless in jail addicted to substances die of uh, substances and so i think that we need to i would recommend focusing on ways to enhance men's outcomes in society and kind of alleviate some of their suffering and ways to incorporate them into the education system. And so maybe that would look like more trade schools or a different approach to school that men's 
traits are more valued. Um, so maybe encouraging or being more accepting of like f- need for physical outlets. I'm not sure what exactly yeah. that would look like. Um, but yeah, so I, I do, I do view men's lower enrollment as a problem in itself, not, not just for women. Um, but for the women looking for mates, that can be really tough. I guess what I would recommend is maybe focusing on other ways by which men can contribute and kind of valuing those skills. So maybe instead, rather than just focusing only on a partner's resources, thinking about whether they would be a good teammate when it came to raising kids, like are they kind and um tender hearted, I would look for maybe those attributes, or you could look for some of these like physical or trade attributes that maybe don't pay as well, but are still incredibly useful. I feel like every time something breaks in my household, I'm like, I need to show more gratitude towards plumbers <laughs> and like, because I am useless when it comes to these things. So maybe greater appreciation of those skill sets. Um, but yeah, I'd, it's really interesting. I don't know how it's going to go. Um, it might be the case that more women attempt to kind of raise kids alone. If you have a lot of resources, you could you could go to a sperm, you know, get a sperm donor and do it on your own, which is one route. And so I'm I'm really curious to see how this will play out. If women will kind of adjust what they're looking for and value other traits. But I think, you know, to really do that, you have to fully commit to that because it would be very unfair to say, look for a partner who has these other attributes that are important to you, say like raising for raising kids, maybe they're really kind or have these other skill sets, but then to like subtly penalize them for not being the breadwinner. I think that would be unfair. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So I guess either adjust expectations or, yeah, I don't know, maybe some women will go at it alone, which is challenging in its own way. So I'm, I'm not sure how it's going to yep. play out. But, but yeah, you know I think what? I would probably focus more on like the finding ways to enhance male outcomes in the world and make sure they're not being left behind. Yeah, this is um, related to another point I wanted to bring up with you, which is there does seem to be, you know, if you are one of these, you know, rare men who are kind of ticking all those boxes off and you're single at a certain age with cues of intelligence and resources that women find appealing, there can be this kind of runaway effect, especially given modern technology for these guys to just have an incredible amount of options that would would have been inconceivable even 10 years ago. And it's like an 80-20 rule on steroids. For a lot of these people and you know there's a theme that i know you have written about that i had never considered in from an evolutionary perspective but it makes total sense i think when you begin to delve into it which is the you know the female concept of slut shaming and why that's there in the first place and i i heard you earlier this morning when i was researching and you know doing some final preparations for this conversation talk about how that is even often more pronounced in mothers who have sons, if I remember correctly. Uh, you know what? What is that general phenomenon all about? That you know historically and even to this day, anyone who's gone through high school is familiar with this idea because it's everywhere. Of why women 
are likely doing this of of shaming other women who they view as as too promiscuous yeah so because it's the case that men don't have paternity certainty like we talked about there's a greater interest in cues of fidelity, sexual fidelity. And one of those is a woman's sexual history. So if a woman has had a lot of sexual partners, you might be, as her male partner, less confident that the baby she has is yours. Hmm. And so there's it opens up this possibility where women can use this information to harm one another's mate value. Um, and so there's the motivation for women from a intrasexual competition perspective that it might give you a slight leg up if you're a rival if you can say well you know tammy slept around a lot and i haven't and so you can kind of use your relative sexual chastity to outcompete your rival might give you greater access to the mates that can provide or have the resources to or are willing to but then there's also kind of the concern, women also have a motivation to protect their relationship. So not only getting a mate, but once you have one, if men are more open to, you know, short-term sexual encounters, and the data suggests they are, then this opens up the risk of your male partner being poached from you by another mm. woman. Mm. Um, and so that is another reason why women can kind of might be motivated to ostracize or harm the reputations of other women who are more sexually open. So the data suggest um, Schmidt did this cross-cultural study finding that he looked at which female mate poachers are the most successful, mm. and they were the ones who were attractive and sexually unrestrained. Mm. And so those women are other women's most threatening rivals if they are the ones that are successfully luring away partnered men. And so if you, you know, if we think about throughout human history, if you lost your male partner, that might be you might have lost shelter for your children or food for your children. So it's a big deal to lose your male partner. And so I think that's another reason why women might be motivated to um, question or harm the women who they perceive as being sexually unrestrained. And then we can think also about from a mother's perspective. So there's this pattern that they found where it was among Islamic women. If they had more sons, they were more supportive of female veiling. So covering up the male body. And so what I think this pattern might suggest is that when you're a mother and you have sons, you now have your son's interests in mind. And for your sons, you might be concerned about whether they are the legitimate fathers of children. Hmm. So you now have your son's paternity concerns kind of taken on as your own. And so when you have more sons, you might have more greater concern over kind of the male reproductive interests, which would be ensuring your paternity status, which might mean, you know, discouraging women from being very sexually promiscuous and instead supporting more kind of sexual restraint. Um, and so it's kind of interesting that the interests change among women when they are mothers and now you have the reproductive interests of your children. And so if you have more sons, that might mean kind of male reproductive interests are more salient. And so I think if we take all of these patterns together, what they're 
you know, suggesting is that this concern over male paternity status has kind of given incentives for women to also care about women's sexual histories. And so women are facing a lot of pressure, both from men that they want to mate with or form long-term relationships with and their female rivals to be sexually restrained. And so, you know, aggregated, you might find then this sexual double standard where we don't hold men to the same sexual standards that we hold women to. And we can make sense of why that would be because, you know, for our, our female ancestors, they didn't need to worry about to the same degree, whether their male partners were sexually faithful, because if he had a one night stand, but he's still a good partner to you, it's not the end of the world. It sucks. It's still awful, but that's not as risky as, you know, his abandoning you altogether. Whereas for our male ancestors, if their female partner had, you know, a sexual affair, that could have meant you were now raising someone else's baby, investing all of these resources into somebody else's child unknowingly. And Mm. so there's just an asymmetry in the threat that sexual infidelity posed to men versus women, which now has all of these downstream consequences where we put female sexuality and, you know, under a microscope in a way that we don't to the same degree for men. Yeah. This was a, uh, a concept I was thinking about when I was talking to Joyce the other day, which was, you know, as she was kind of going through her own research and her own conclusions about the difference between, you know, on average, again, like on average, the differences between men and women, that the emphasis to her of, you know, kind of the oscillation of men in general to go between competition and cooperation, that that's kind of a key aspect of, of guys and that there can be upside to having more capable, more talented men on your quote unquote team. And that that in her mind is the root of, for lack of a better phrase, kind of having a libertarian view of life, and that for women, and I know I've I've heard you speak about this, the emphasis on equality, you know, equality in friendships, equalities in, you know, perception, not wanting to, kind of stick your neck out again. These this is on average, but that that seems to be supported by the evidence and. You know, I was as I was talking to her, I was thinking, like, you've basically just summarized the difference between the Republican and the Democratic Party at a macro level. That like one one party is about equality of opportunity and letting the chips fall where they may. And the other party, roughly speaking, is about, you know, we're all in this together. We we need to take care of each other and be more equitable with how we're distributing our resources. I, I don't know if you even agree with what I just said there, but um, I'd love to ask you about that and see if that in any way resonates as being as a rough heuristic, something that you know you would tend to agree with. Yeah. So I mean, the emphasis emphasis on equality. Um, I I do think that that is a huge aspect of female female relationships. So we talked about you know our female ancestors in these patrilocal con- contexts, like. How do you find a long-term ally you can rely on? And people, Dave Geary has argued women, women did this with reciprocal altruism. And when you look at mathematical models of reciprocal altruism, where benefits are being exchanged in kind of a tip for tap manner, Hmm. 
That is very hard to maintain when partners diverge in resources or power. So if you get too large of asymmetries, the relationship can no longer be mutually beneficial. And so I believe that's the, the reason or one big contributing factor why women tend to focus much more on equality between partners. And you do find this, that women tend to prefer equal distributions of resources. Um, They tend to prefer more strongly equality and egalitarian notions. Um, And so, yes, I I think that you're totally right that that is a stronger aspect of female-female dynamics. And we can think about why that might not be with men. So throughout human history, our male ancestors were often competing in larger groups, either in the context of warfare or big game hunting. And so in those larger groups, what is most effective is specialization. And so you are going to be better served if this guy who's the best at making arrows focuses on that, this guy who's the best at, you know, um, coming up with strategies focuses on that. So specialization in these large groups is critical. And that'll inevitably lead to disparities in resources or status. So if you have one guy who's a great leader because he's good at strategy, you all need to defer to him to be the most successful on the team. If you're all like, you know, no, we're equal here, you're going to be a mess out on the battlefield. Um, And data suggests that throughout human history, the men who were more successful on the battlefield replaced the losers in the gene pool, meaning the losers died And then the winning group of men reproduced with those women. Mm -hmm. And so there were huge, you know, consequences at stake, survival and reproduction for our male ancestors. So we are the descendants of the male ancestors who could form these really large cooperative groups. Um, And so in those contexts, that would favor deferring to talented same-sex peers even if it meant you have slightly lower status, if your entire group wins, you live, you know, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) You'd rather be the lowest member on the successful team than the highest member on the team who gets slaughtered. Um, And so that should favor psychological kind of differences among men and women where equality served different benefits to our female ancestors compared to our male ancestors. Um, And so I think that can also contribute to why you see such a sex difference in this preference for equality. Hmm. And then you can also consider like the emphasis on things like care, which tends to be a much more progressive emphasis. That makes sense with the challenges faced by our female ancestors where I, you know, I've argued that they look for kindness in one one another. And so you're really valuing kindness that might come at the expense of maybe some other values. Hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I think it's pretty interesting to think about how some of the virtues of each political party might align more strongly with men and women's kind of asymmetric goals. And you do find, or at least throughout human history, you do find that women tend to kind of espouse more of these progressive motivations. And so I think it would be really interesting to look at what motivates, say, progressive men to adopt this um you know, party or these preferences that are slightly different from the average interest of men throughout human history. And same too for women who tend to be more conservative, you know, um, what, what aspects of their biology or, you know, selective pressures have led them to slightly value these other traits. So I think you could notice kind of these average differences, and then it'd be really interesting to explore kind of when the sexes 
go against what might be expected. Um, could be that they just have different attributes on average that allow them to pursue a different strategy. So it might just be like, given my phenotype, it's actually in my interest to pursue this route of values compared to this other route. Um, so yeah, I don't think a theory has like fully explained that, but it would be totally cool. I think that's a fascinating observation. It's it's absolutely fascinating. And I, you know, I, I grew up in the Rust Belt and I know it consistently in the past decade or so, there's been a confusion as to why so many people, especially men would quote, vote against their own interests when they're, st- you know, their, their union jobs are going away and they're still voting Republican. Uh, as an example, and that very well may just be that it violates something deep in their nature and that they refuse to vote against the general principles of, you know, the male tendency for cooperation and competition combined with letting the results go where they go, even if that means that they don't get the largest slice of the pie in general. Yeah, I know, I know we're getting, uh, we're close to the end of the conversation. And uh, I, I just want to say, I cannot wait to follow your career as you, um, you know, probably end up writing a lot more and writing books. And I, I said this earlier that I think your field is just the most interesting subject that I'm aware of that is going on, on, on the, on the planet right now. So I want to thank you for all the time you've, you've given. Um, and I, I want to maybe close with just asking you about what to do with this information. I mean, outside of the fact that I think it's accurate and just completely fascinating and I think can help people just become more self-aware of their own motivations for good and for ill. Just having that knowledge, I, I have to think, will help people in general. But you know, th- there are consequences to human nature and the society as it's you know developing right now we touched on one about you know the the dating market as it relates to men and women i'd love to maybe close by just asking you about you know what why this infor- why this matters why why knowing about this matters and and maybe more specifically to how it can you know be applicable to the aspects of human life that people actually care about like dating, like, you know, marriage and friendship. Um, and I don't know if, if you've given a lot of thought to this, but I'm wondering, given that you're steeped in the literature and you know as much as almost anybody about evolutionary psychology, if, if you have, again, like additional wisdom and advice for people related to how to use this information to just make their lives, for lack of a better word, just better in general. Maybe we can close on that, and um, I'd love to give you some time to speak to that in, in, in general. Yeah, I think so much could be done with this information. First and foremost, being self-aware, as you noted. So, yeah. you know, why, why am I looking for these traits in my romantic partner? Why am I looking for these traits in a same-sex friend? Why do I care so much about that? And I think for anyone interested in therapy, whether it's like marital counseling, I think could be incredibly useful. So like one thing I tell my, you know, sexuality class is I tell them, so say like men have this preference for sexual variety. Are there ways to say you have a male partner to convince him he's getting sexual variety through one person? Yes, there are. You could be creative and use things like, you know, wigs or accents or costumes. Mm. So we could use this preference 
to maximize our enjoyment of our relationship. But if men or women are coming into relationships with different values because of the challenges faced by our ancestors, then we can explain that to our clients and help them have empathy for one another to kind of understand where they're coming from. So, you know, why might women be so attentive to cues of commitment? Well, throughout human history, the female ancestors who got abandoned, you know, died or couldn't provide for their kids, then being very sensitive to whether your partner is still invested in you would have been really a a strong selective pressure for our female ancestors. So I think we can have empathy and foster kind of understanding for why our partners might be showing the concerns that they're showing. Um, I also think when we choose our same-sex friends and kind of the standards that we Mm -hmm. hold them to, Mm -hmm. it can be useful to have this um, evolutionary lens through which to view those things. So if, for example, women place more emphasis on cues of kindness and personal loyalty, then you might think to yourself, well, do I really care about this one thing and why do I care about it? So say if a female friend forgets your birthday, is that actually a big deal or have just female ancestors faced pressures to care about loyalty? And so instead of, you know, ending the friendship, you might think about all the other ways that she's demonstrated loyalty to you rather than just forgetting your birthday or forgetting to ask about how your mom is doing, whatever it is. Um, So having awareness might be helpful from (laughs) sabotaging our relationships. Mm. But I also wonder if, if men and women faced different, if they faced divergent pressures to attract kind of same sex allies, then we might be bringing those tendencies into work environments in that are also like maybe not the best. Hmm. So if, for example, our female ancestors needed to look for cues of kindness and loyalty, then maybe it's the case when a female boss sends me an email that doesn't seem particularly warm, maybe I'm more angry at her than I would be if a male boss sent me that exact same email. And so being aware of like, well, am I holding my female colleagues to a different standard from my male colleagues could be really useful to not penalize, you know, other women in the workplace? Or, you know, is it really a problem if she wears that low cut top in the office, you know, or have female ancestors just face pressures to gossip about other women displaying cues of sexual openness? You know, so I think that we might be able to keep our own behavior in check, but also like if you were in HR, maybe explain to employees why they might have the impulse that they do and like whether that actually matters in a modern environment. Because one takeaway is, you know, we care about things that were threats to our ancestors, but Mm. they might not be aligned with our modern goals. So you might want to be a feminist, but throughout human history, women were competing in the domain of sexuality. So maybe you have these impulses to slut shame, but that actually actually aren't aligned with your modern values. Um, and so I think having an awareness of this could could be useful in getting our modern behaviors and concerns aligned with our modern values. Fair enough. Tanya, you're great. I really appreciate this conversation. Everything that you do and everything that your field is is researching and trying to, you know, just reveal to the public and to get a better understanding of the truth and ourselves. I I love this conversation. And like I said, I can't wait to follow your career. So thank you so much for doing this. 
Thank you, Dan. This was so much fun. I really appreciate your interest and curiosity. And it, it's always just exciting when someone else appreciates evolutionary psychology. So I am biased, but I think you're on the right track. I agree. I think it's super <laughs> <awesome>. <laughs> So thank you for, you know, offering this platform. And I really appreciate the work you're doing. My pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 